Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. What's evicting my people who didn't want to die serving lattes to anti-mask activists? That's actually one of your best intros. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, where are you going? Uh, and I was like, oh no, there, pull, pulled it off. Great job. So this is It Could Happen Here. It's a show about collapse. And speaking of collapse... Um, the Supreme Court just issued a shadow ruling, which we should probably do a whole episode about this practice of like Supreme Court decisions that are it, it was a Supreme Court decision that was not a Supreme Court decision. So they don't have to issue like a whole justification. They don't have to like explain where everyone landed. They just said, hey, you know, the eviction moratoriums that the Biden administration just pushed through again. Nah, it's not not constitutional. We're not going to say anymore. Uh, start kicking people out of their motherfucking homes. And boy, how did that process have started? And we don't know. I mean, I, I think the, the the you'll get very different numbers when you try to figure out like how many people are going to get evicted or at risk of being evicted. Like the highest you'll hear is like 30 to 40 million Americans at risk of eviction. Um, I think it was, um, I think it was Bank of America's numbers that uh, anticipated as many as 750,000 households. Goldman, 
Oh, it was it Goldman Goldman yeah, Sachs? Yeah, Goldman Sachs numbers. Anticipated about seven hundred and fifty thousand American households losing their homes, getting, and, and that's obviously more than seven hundred fifty thousand people. Now, when we talk about like how many of those folks could end up homeless, um, it's going to be a less than that total number of households because whenever you have stuff like this happen, like in two thousand eight, a decent number of people who lose access to their homes wind up kind of couch surfing, bunking with family. You wind up with two or three families in one home, which is obviously particularly a problem during a pandemic, right? Like if you have families doubling or tripling up in the same house while there's a plague, that's um that introduces additional complications. But it's it's possible, in fact, very likely, because about the the, est the kind of conservative estimate for the number of people who are homeless on American streets right now is a little over 550,000. So there's a pretty good chance that the number of homeless could essentially double in the next you know, not quite overnight because evictions, it's not like a thing where like, okay, the Supreme Court said you can evict people now. Everybody's out on their ass the next day. It's it's a process of evicting people. There is like a legal process. But in the near future, we could see a doubling of the number of Americans um, who are without homes, if not even potentially more than that. So it's pretty high stakes, um, which I think necessitates everybody be thinking about uh, not just ways to fight the Supreme Court ruling or whatever, not just ways to get the government to provide support to people, but also eviction defense. Um, because kind of historically, and today we're going to kind of give a little bit of a historic overview here. Um, historically, eviction defense is, it has not in American history solved the overall problems, but it solves, it, it, it can provide necessary, uh, it can be a necessary like tourniquet for a lot of people and for communities um, before kind of more long-term solutions to these problems get 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 brought up. And I, I think it behooves us to talk about eviction defense kind of from that standpoint. Um, so I found a really interesting article. When you, when you start reading about eviction defense, uh, a lot of the eviction defense like articles kind of talking about the Great Depression are going to come from the International Socialist Review or other uh, kind of socialist uh, or outright communist like websites, um, and there's there's some good reasons for this, which is that uh, the organizations during the Great Depression who were doing most of the anti eviction organizing were communist organizations. Now I found some kind of scholarly analyses of some of the reporting on that that will point out that they, especially if you're kind of like report if you're if you're studying eviction defense based on kind of the the documents at the time, and it was a lot of like socialist worker. Um, and unemployed citizen and whatnot, newspapers with titles like that, um, a lot of those would kind of tend to deliberately undercount the efforts of, of non-communist anti-eviction organizations because there was a whole political fight going on then. Um, so keep that in mind. That said, it is kind of worth reading uh, uh, some, of these, some of these accounts. And I, I think one that is particularly... Uh, noteworthy is what happened in New York City starting in 1931-1932. Um, and this was in the Bronx, uh, Park East, and Allerton Avenue. Um, and it started, obviously, like the Great Depression kicks off like 1930-1931. Um, by January of 1932, you've got a huge number of people unemployed and increasingly desperate, and you've got these landlords trying to evict and kick them out. Um, and the communists in the Bronx started uh, an eviction defense network that was very noteworthy. And it kind of, it, it initially crystallized around this series of communist co-ops, which were these two buildings in the Bronx that were populated by communists. Um, and that had included like a cooperative housing experiment, like some cooperative gardening, that sort of stuff. And they were mostly um, Eastern European uh, Jewish like 
workers, like people who had come over from Europe and in a lot of cases had been uh, socialist activists in Europe, many of whom had like had to flee Europe to the United States because of their activism. Um, and in uh, January of 1932, they organized rent strikes uh, at three large apartment buildings at Bronx East Park. Um, and one of the things that they uh, they created was what they called the Upper Bronx Unemployed Council. And this kind of was part of a, a series of decisions that led to like the creation of an organization called the Unemployed Citizens Committees, I think is what they called them. Um, and kind of one of the ideas there was to point out that you know, despite kind of the focus within the capitalist system on people needing to have a job, needing to make income in order to be like citizens, unemployed people were citizens too, and embody and imbued with like the full rights of an American citizen. Um, and so they were kind of taking ownership of the term unemployed rather than accepting it as a slur. Um, that like, no, we're like we're still citizens, and we we have rights and power, and we'll. Um, will organize in order to enact our power on or in order to um, in order to kind of uh, forcefully uh, try to make the changes that we need. And so these these communists in the Bronx organized three buildings worth of tenants into a rent strike. They were refusing to pay rent until they got their demands, which were a 15 percent reduction in rent and into eviction uh, repairs in uh, apartments and recognition of the tenants committee as an official bargaining agent. So they were trying to effectively unionize like in the same way that workers had just for tenants in a building. Um, now these, like this rent strike set off a rent riot, uh, that eventually more than 4,000 people participated in, uh, city marshals and the marshals were the people the city would hire to, to force homeless people out of their houses. Um, marshals and police showed up, uh, to evict, uh, 17 tenants and yeah, about 4,000 people showed up to oppose them. And that started this massive street fight. Um, and it was largely, and and this would be the case with most of these rent strikes in the early 30s. It was largely women who would do most of the fighting and who would do most of the um the the like the actual like physical organizing against the police. And some of this was because they recognized that like when their men were there, the cops would beat the shit out of them and arrest them. And so there was a lot of times where they were like, Okay, you guys get out of the house, like the women are going to organize, we'll get up on the the fire escapes and the balconies, we'll like we'll throw shit at the cops, you know? Um, and these were also very like and I don't want to like be be ignoring this either. These were extremely communist, uh, 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 like uh, events. Like they would be singing communist songs. They would be like making carrying out communist chants. It was communist papers that did a lot of the organizing. Um, I want to read a quote from that International Socialist Review article that I found, kind of like laying out how this particular strike went. Quote, Bronx property owners moved quickly to try to contain the movement. At first, they tried arbitration. Following the evictions at 665 Allerton, landlords in Bronx Park East asked a Blue Ribbon Committee of Bronx Jewish leaders to arbitrate the dispute, convinced that an impartial examination of the building's books would show that the landlord could not meet the strikers' demands without operating at a loss. But the strike leaders contemptuously rejected arbitration, and indeed the whole notion that a reasonable return on one's investment represented a basis for negotiation. When times were good, strike leader Max Kamowitz declared, the landlords didn't offer to share their profits with us. The landlords made enough money off us when we had it. Now that we haven't got it, the landlords must be satisfied with less. 
Faced with this kind of bargaining position, landlords felt they had no choice but to pull out the stops to suppress the movement. By the second week of February 1932, two major organizations of Bronx landlords had formed rent strike committees that offered unlimited funding and legal support for any landlord facing a communist-led rent strike. Using the considerable political influence and legal expertise at their disposal, they developed a strategy that included wholesale issuance of dispossessed notices against striking tenants, efforts to win injunctions against picketing and strikes, agreements by judges to waive normal delay periods and evictions, and efforts to ban rent strikes by legislative enactment. The situation has become much graver than most persons suppose, one landlord's spokesman declared. The strikes are spreading rapidly, and scores of landlords are facing financial ruin or loss of their properties as a result of them. Former state Senator Benjamin Anton told landlords, this is a peculiar neighborhood. It is the hotbed of communism and radicalism. The people in this neighborhood are mostly communists and Soviet sympathizers. They do not believe in our form of government. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this, so in a lot of cases, particularly there was like this this first big set of riots that kind of ended when the police kind of pushed the rioters back, but because of how many of them there were, they came to an agreement and like the landlords gave concessions to the people in those three buildings. But the next set of strikes were pretty much crushed and the majority of the rent strikes, they start popping up in buildings kind of all around this part of New York in the period. They don't win the initial strike. Um, by which I mean uh, people get evicted. The marshals come in, they take these people's furniture out. But what the communists started doing, because they had the numbers, is they would show up after the cops and the marshals left, and they would lift, like, they would get, like put together pulley systems and lift people's furniture back into their apartments um, and move them back in. And so part of the understanding was it costs the city money every time they send marshals out because the city was paying to evict people. So we'll just move them back in after they're evicted, um, and that's going to like make the situation untenable for the city. Um, so that led to the police setting up like temporary police stations outside of some of the buildings that were like most active as part of a, a long-term solution to try uh, to suppress the revolt. Um, the one issue of the Daily Worker noted, quote, cops patrol the street all day. The entire territory is under semi-martial law. People are driven around the streets, off the corners, and away from the houses. Um... And so, yeah, it, it, you know, kind of this went on for weeks and there's uh, one of the criticisms that even this, this international socialist review write up I found will make of the, of the initial rent strike is that because kind of the, uh, a lot of the hardcore communist activists came to relish sort of these clashes with police as a result of the evictions and had this belief that they would radicalize the masses um, whereas there was, I think, among the masses, more of like a, well, we, we mostly don't want to lose our homes. And when it became, when you hit this, like, you, they kind of hit this wall where they would come out and fight the cops, but the cops would win and push people out in the end, and the evictions would still happen. Um, and it, it kind of led to this uh, uh, kind of loss of, of, of momentum within the movement. Um and that didn't change until the the communists kind of altered their organizing strategy. Um, and so they started carrying out, they started like mobilizing all of the different sort of left-wing networks that were in the area to not just do eviction resistance, but to picket rent-striking uh, buildings to hold street rallies and protest marches. When uh, a protester was killed by the police, they got like 50,000 people out in the streets. And it was just, it was this matter of number one, keeping huge numbers of people in the streets, which is, you know, expensive for the city, was bad for business in a lot of cases. Um, but they also started organizing unemployed people into uh, uh, like 
kind of a quasi-union sort of situation that didn't just organize stuff on the street, but started uh, uh, reaching out to the government when, because this is right around the time that the Roosevelt administration started pushing protections um, and in, including like eviction protections and like funding to help people stay in their houses. And that was kind of, you could you could argue like a lot of those protections came about as a result of all of the people who were doing eviction resistance on the street. But these, these uh, unemployed councils, they called them, would basically help people go to the government, help people like file for benefits, help people and help people stay in their houses. And kind of in the end, through a variety of different tactics, um, they were really successful in uh, stopping large numbers of people from being dispossessed and keeping a lot of these communities um, together. And the home relief bureaus, which is kind of the government agencies uh, that were formed from like the fund, the emergency funding here, um, worked with the uh, the unemployed councils to keep people in their homes. So it was this, you saw this situation where you had, it's what started with kind of like physical force confronting the eviction uh, teams and confronting the police. And that helped to organize and galvanize people, but it had its limitations. Um, and that eventually evolved into a broader sort of series of strikes and marches that were disruptive enough to life that they, uh, in the city that they helped to, uh, to provide kind of um, impetus for government benefits to keep people in their homes. And then once those benefits were there, a lot of these organizations kind of pivoted towards helping people uh, uh, like file and get benefits in order to keep them in their homes. And in the end of it, it was just kind of this very multifaceted uh, movement that had its missteps and went through a variety of tactics over time, but in the end was, was largely successful in keeping communities from being forced out of their homes. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I think it's, it's an interesting story and it's, it's kind of, you see when you, when you hear eviction events talked about you, you, people tend to kind of hone in on just the big fights against the police, which were clearly important, or they tend to hone in on stuff that happened elsewhere in the country, uh, like organizations of farmers and sharecroppers who would, uh, show up in eviction courts and like threaten police and, uh, stop, you know, sheriffs from evicting widows from their homes and whatnot. And these are important stories, but I think the broader story about like why these eviction resistance networks functioned was that they, they pivoted regularly. They didn't just stick with, we're going to fight the cops when they try to evict people. They formed these unemployed councils. Um, and these unemployed councils were communist organizations, but you didn't have to be a communist to join um, or to benefit from them. And they would you know, lobby the government on behalf of these people. They would help them get benefits. Um, and in the end, all of this was really successful in you know, what was the most important uh, battle, which was keeping families in their homes. Um, so I don't know. That's 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 kind of like the uh, we'll, we'll include a couple of of links in here, but um, that's kind of the overall uh, story of of what happened in uh, particularly in New York in the '30s, which was kind of the the best documented series of eviction resistance movements. Yeah. yeah. Quick break. Go pee and then continue peeing because you can pee and listen to a podcast. <laughs> Must Ain't no be God. nice.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month. No matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We're back. Um... And before I move on to, to to Chris's, I wanted to make a note that I've come across a couple of times in my in the readings that I found that like kind of talk about eviction resistance in the 30s, but within the context of of either what was happening in 2008 after the financial crash or what's happening now, which is that evictions are way more common now than they ever were during the Great Depression, um, both as a percentage of workers and in absolute numbers. Um, it is uh, enormously common. And in uh, one of the statistics I found in a New Yorker article about the eviction epidemic is that in Milwaukee, a city which has about 105,000 renter households, landlords legally evict roughly 16,000 adults and children every year. Um, and that's like, that that is a significantly higher rate than they were dealing in this period. And because evictions are so commonplace, they don't really attract much attention. One of the reasons why those early de- eviction defense networks were able to get so many people out in the streets is that the idea that families would be evicted, um, particularly in any kind of significant numbers, was was fairly new. And so it drew a lot of attention. People were outraged. Um, whereas today, it's something that happens all the time. Um, and it's something that uh, there a, a significant amount of infrastructure has been built up to allow evictions. 
So there are full-time sheriff squads in large cities whose only job is to carry out eviction and foreclosure orders. There are moving companies that specialize in just evictions, and the crews for these companies work all day long, five days a week. There is, there's so much of this going on in every major city in the country um, that there's uh, a significant amount of there's a, you, you're not just competing with, you know, these these kind of ad hoc teams of marshals and cops showing up to, like, pile furniture out on the street. You're dealing with years worth of infrastructure to enable evictions. Um, so, yeah, that sucks. Anyway, Chris, yeah, why don't you why don't you go on? <laughs> you know, well, OK, what, one thing I will say, though, is that, you know, still even to this day, like the landlords rely heavily on people self-evicting. People just mm-hmm. sort of, yeah, you know, like you had an eviction notice, people just leave, right? And so they, they, they do not, even even with all the sort of capacity they built up, they don't actually have the ability to, like, if, if everyone, if literally every tenant, I mean, you know, like, and people, a lot of tenants have started showing up in court, but like, if, the, it, it would be genuinely difficult for them to actually evict every single person, like, by force, you know, even, even with the infrastructure they've built up. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I would talk about, before I go into some more resistance examples, sort of how we got here, which is, you know, there's there, there's a lot of stuff that happens in the 70s and 80s that are sort of important to this. Um, on, on a sort of macroeconomic level, it seems, seems all the way out, uh, you know, for the 70s and 80s, there's this enormous economic sort of collapse. There's, there's all these economic problems, there's massive inflation. And one of the big things that's happening here is that you know, so profit rates in manufacturing are collapsing. It's like, okay, well, what does that have to do with housing? Well, what it has to do with housing is that, you know, we'll zoom in on Japan for a second because like the U.S. sort of just like guts Japan's manufacturing economy in the 80s through some sort of complicated currency stuff. But Japan's solution to this is interesting. They, you know, they're like, okay, so our manufacturing sector is in ruins. How do we maintain the economy? What if we just give a bunch of credit, like very cheap credit to banks and let them buy houses? <laughs> And so they do, yeah, you know, and you know, and the Japanese yeah, government's assumption is, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, well, they'll buy houses and they'll and they'll you know they'll buy houses and they'll buy stocks and the value of, the, of those assets will just keep like keep increasing, keep increasing, keep increasing. Nothing will ever go wrong with this. Uh, about f- yeah, maybe like eight years later, you get the the East Asian bubble collapsing, and you know that's that that's a big part of what that was. But the the the, the important part about this for us is that so in order to save Japan, right, the U.S. government guts its own, its own manufacturing sector, and so this means in the nineties. You know, you have Clinton going, okay, how are we going to save the economy? And Clinton looks at the Japanese model and was like, wait, no, hold on. We can do this too. And so, you know, the, the, fir- the first collapse this causes, you know, Clinton, Clinton gives the banks a bunch of cheap credit. They buy stocks with it. You know, they give like us a bunch of cheap credit and, you know, we buy houses and we buy stocks with it. And then, you know, the tech bubble implodes. And then this all leads to 2008 where, you know, all of the, all of the sort of all the bad mortgages the 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 banks have been passing out just implode and and some a couple of banks go under by a couple of, like like two like three banks go under but the ones who survive suddenly you know there's all these foreclosed houses and you know they just they just start buying them up and i mean part, part of the story is obama just starts this thing called a robo signing where they, they just start signing like foreclosure notices on just random houses like people who were keeping up on their payments they just like they just take their houses like tens of tens of thousands of these houses just get taken and get back to the bank given back to the banks and this is you know this this is how the banks recovered from 2008 is they took about they just stole a bunch of people's houses at gunpoint and what what you see from there and you know and this is this is the this, this sort of long-range trend that's been happening in, in in the economy since you know since the 70s and the 80s is that you know okay so the, the the sort of the institutional investors, people with a bunch of money, 
they can't get returns from manufacturing anymore in the way they used to. So instead, they're like, okay, what if, you know, what if, what if instead of making money by making things, we just take the money from you at gunpoint and we invest in, you know, we, we, we build, we build enormous police force and we buy everyone's houses. And now, you know, the, the, there's, you know, if you, like, we, we, you know, this, this is how we get to a situation that's even worse than what was happening in the 30s, which is that, like, you know, enormous portions of the world economy are just completely dependent on, on these, these banks and these, these sort of giant landlord firms owning these buildings and then, you know, putting a gun to your head and saying, hey, you're going to give us money. And if you don't give us money, you lose your home. There are periods where people mount sort of effective resistances to this. One of them is in... So in Spain after 2008, you know, Spain is one of the countries worst hit by, by, by the whole sort of collapse. And, you know, so enormous number of people get evicted, but they realize that, you know, there's just a bunch of these houses that are just sitting there empty. And so, you know, very slowly and it's sort of accelerating after 2008, 2011, people start just squatting in them. And, you know, and, and a lot of, some of these people, like these people, some of them, a lot of times they're going back to the homes that like the banks have taken for them. And, you know, they, they form these, basically they, they, they form these like enormous, I guess you could call, they're sort of, they're part squatter organizations, part um, like anti-eviction organizations. And what, they, what, what they're basically able to do is they can, yeah, the, the biggest one is called, uh, uh, as PAH, um, and what what they're basically able to do is they can get enough people together that when the when the police show up for an eviction, they can bring like five thousand, six thousand people, and this makes it just almost this makes it almost impossible, you know, un, un, unless unless the police can like can specifically isolate one squat squat that doesn't have community support, it becomes almost impossible to evict people, and so they have these, you know, there's 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 you know, and they they lo- they lose some battles, they win some battles, but. You know they're able to hold because because they have these these, these sort of enormous organizations of of you know people who are squatting and then they have you know they have a bunch of community support they have support and this is this is something I think you know talking about how the sort of communist strategy works in the 30s this is something that we're going to see with a lot of these is that like the renters a, a bunch of like renters or a bunch of sort of a bunch of people who are squatting in houses a bunch of people who are trying to do eviction defense because they're being evicted. You know, the, there's there's kind of a limit to what they can do on their own to some extent, and the way that they, you know, the way that they start winning is when they're able to sort of, well, a a when they stop fighting, you know, landlords individually, and b, you know, and you, you start getting these large organizations. And the second re- and the second thing that changes is when they're able to bring in the rest of the community. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one one of the the another sort of example of this is in in 2017. You know, it, really from, from, you know, about 2016, 2017, across North America, you start to see a, a sort of resurgence of, of, tenant, of tenant organizing. And, you know, one of, one of the most sort of famous examples is uh, Parkdale, which is a, uh, it, it's, 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 in, it's a uh, place in Toronto. And in Parkdale, a whole bunch, of, you know, several, several hundred tenants in, uh, across a bunch of buildings are organizing for a long time. And, Eventually, you know the the you know they keep getting rent increases. They keep getting rent increases, and you know a bunch of these people are going to are in danger of losing their homes because they can't afford them anymore. And so they start doing rent strikes, and they they start going from building to building to building. And you know they're they're not fighting the cops as much as sort of the communists were. A, a lot of what they do is 
so a lot of people, you know, these Parkdale is a working class community, right? It's also a largely immigrant community. And, you know, it's, it's sort of rapidly being gentrified. But, you know, a lot of people who are in these, you know, a lot of the tenants are are people who, you know, had, had been in like labor actions, right? Had been, in, had been in strikes, had been in sort of other kinds of uh, labor organizing. And so they're able to pull together and they're able also to, importantly, they, they bring in like a bunch of the teachers at so the local elementary school because, you know, a bunch of the buildings that they're, that they're striking in that are owned by these landlords are right around an elementary school. And, you know, the, the, the teachers who, you know, teach in these schools are, you know, they're, they're also seeing the effects of these kids losing their family, like, you know, the, the kids losing their houses, kids just disappearing because they lost their houses, kids dealing with these financial struggles. And so they, you know, the, t- the teachers start backing them and you start getting this, this bunch of community support and they're able to basically to force the landlords to negotiate and they, they get, they get a settlement. That's like the, 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 the way they describe it, there, there's, there's a really good documentary about this called welcome to park uh, called, this is Parkdale. And you know, the, the way to describe it is that the, the deal they got with, from, from all the, all this organizing, all these rent strikes was so good that the government, that like the, 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 the company put a gag order on them. So they can't talk about the numbers <laughs> right before the pandemic started. I think some people probably have heard of this. There was a group called bonds for housing, that was in Oakland that, you know, was, was, had, had taken back houses that had been taken, you know, by, by the banks that were just sitting there empty. And, you know, at the very beginning of 2020, like the police show up with tanks, they show up with, you know, like full riot police stuff. But it's like, yeah, like they're, you know, and the, the moms are sort of like driven from the house. And this starts, you know, this, this is, sort of, this is a continuation of this whole sort of battle they've been having with the landlords and with the city over it. And eventually, you know, they're not able to physically retake the building, but they're, they're able to put so much pressure on the city that the, 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 the landlord company is basically forced to sell the house to a community land trust, which is one of the other solutions people have sort of come, come up and try to deal with, with this, this crisis more broadly, which is that, you know, instead of, instead of having buildings that are like owned by landlords. And so, you know, the, 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 the reason they're, they, they have this property is to make money from you and they kick you out if you, they can't make enough money. You have, you know, you you have these buildings be owned by the community instead, and you know, and this 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 has been, I mean, there, there's limits to it. Like, you you need to have enough money to actually be able to like buy these buildings, but you know, this that this this that's that's one of the other things that's been you know being done to sort of fight this crisis is by having the communities themselves just directly take control of the buildings. Thanks, Chris. Uh, we're gonna take a quick break, and then we'll be back to hear from Garrison. Well, right, so Robert? when did Sophie become the president of transitions? I've I've always been the president. What, what do you what do you what do you why do you what do you what are you why are you why do you Okay, well, here's ads. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. All right, we're back, and we're going to hear from Garrison last. So I'm going to be bringing up one of the more recent kind of uh, cases of eviction defense that kind of, that captured um, a, a bit like a, a bit of national media attention. Uh, this was back uh, in December of 2020 with the Red House in Portland, kind of kind of riding off the trails of the of the 2020 BLM protests. This kind of had the inertia to. to keep this situation um, active with people, you know, willing to kind of do the thing where you actually go out and fight the cops. Um, although that did not happen tons with this situation. Um, a brief, brief, brief overview of what happened. So there was this uh, family who's been in this specific, who's owned this specific home for like over 50 years. Um, and in, in the 2000s, they ran into a series of financial hardships Um they they took out some kind of predatory loans um and just they kind of just kept getting they they kept they kept running into problems with their home um they 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 tried to have one of their sons do like lit- litigation but he was like a sovereign citizen yeah. type person and it made things kind of worse and it it wasn't really ideal but yeah. But, you know, but that all of so all of that is like is like a part of this but the important part for everyone who decided to actually show up was like we're in like we like this was like during like November and December when the plague was like the worst it was ever at and except this for is, right now except for we like th- there was <laughs> like th- there was there, there was there was no vaccinated people in mm-hmm. November right it was like yeah. like like the the death rates were like super super high yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Was... so and that's when the cops decided to evict this family um, the, the 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 other the other side of this is that. The 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 company that technically like bought the house from the banks is also a pretty shady developer company. Yeah, um, 
So there yeah, was a, it sure was. Yeah. So there was there was a lot of like so weird stuff. It was, it was. Are you going to go into? You the, can you can go into that. Yeah. So basically, just for an example, how shady is they had they were it was some when the national attention started they immediately backed out of wanting to to take the house uh, in such a way that because of kind of some of the connections with people involved everyone's like oh it was an organized crime thing like yeah. <laughs> it, it was it was a criminal enterprise they got attention we're like well this is not worth it we don't we don't want anybody looking in on our shit <laughs> it was it <laughs> we're was, just it was, giving up right away <laughs> it was a very 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 sketchy company mm. slash person had te- had bought the house from f- from the bank which the bank took it from this family but so anyway in like from september to December, the cops kept trying to kick people to, to, to kick the people out of this home. Sometimes they did, and then sometimes the people just like went back. Um, and this kind of all culminated around like December fifth, I think, is uh, is the date that that cops like yeah. really tried to to like you know go in there with like rifles, riot gear, and like like drag people out. Um, and even though it was super early in the morning, a lot of like the people who had been protesting for like BLM in Portland all showed up really quickly, and they chased the cops away. Um, and then everyone got super tense because they just chased away like I don't know, like twenty. I think it was it was mostly sheriffs, I believe. Um, yeah. And yeah, so then they did what everyone in Portland does: is just build barricades. <laughs> which is- <laughs> For some context on this, Portlanders had been building barricades for months, generally to no effect. Like, it would be like there would be a moving protest, somebody would throw a barricade in the street, and the police would immediately shove it aside. But this time it worked. This time it absolutely worked. <laughs> yeah. They built This time it worked like gangbusters. <laughs> they they built very thick barricades over, like, like five different sides of this... Mm-hmm. How? Because like this, this house is like in the middle of a city block. It's a, it was a, it's a super interesting property that just like sits in the middle property. of a street. Um, so they built barricades all around this whole <laughs> this whole section of this neighborhood. They had like they had like caltrops. They had like caltrops are spiky balls basically <laughs> that are meant to fuck up uh, generally tires, but you don't want to step on them either. They they also had um uh, uh I think they're called like are they called. They're called um, check hedgehogs. Um, they're basically ba- kind of like caltrops, but giant. And they're meant to like mess up the undercarriage of a vehicle, make it hard mm-hmm. for vehicles to plow through. So we we had we had these. There was there was all this you know all these kind of impromptu weapons. Um, there was like <laughs> behind all the barricades, people like lined up like bottles and eggs to like mm-hmm. help to just throw at people if they tried to enter. And rocks, lots of <laughs> and rocks. rocks. <laughs> there was various various projectiles like just like laid yeah. out behind all these barricades. But the barricades were thick. You know, the, they like they actually had like multiple layers. Um, and they had like binding to keep them together. It would have been like. It would have been difficult to get you through the barricades. You would have needed a couple hundred people and heavy equipment. Yeah. Especially if the bar- – if I mean, if they weren't manned, obviously, you could just walk through. But if the barricades had been manned, it would have been um, an intense uh, uh, effort in order to force the, your way through them. So, yeah, within like within a few hours, this these barricades started to come mm-hmm. up, and they kept growing mm-hmm. over the course of a week. Um, and there was always, like – there were between like 50 to 100 people ca- like camping out in this spot sometimes even more people um there was like multiple kitchens got set up people trying to like there was like they tried to do like covid safe protocols in certain areas um and yeah it became this like relatively relatively like um uh complicated like 
network of like people like rotating shifts, manning different spots to always make sure people are watching all the different entrances. Um, and basically, this this lasted for like like o- over a week. The mayor was very was very pissed. Um, he was not thrilled that this situation was happening uh, because. One, it made the sheriffs look bad, and two, it made it made the protesters actually look effective. Um, yep. And now, the, the, now, like all of these things, we've talked about this stuff before. There's, there's always runs into problems with so, sorts of things. This is they're never perfect. There was instances of people who appointed themselves security. Oh god, um, yeah. Doing like you know, like like attacking people for like doing graffiti on like random walls um, of like of like of like like pavement in other like apartment buildings or whatever it's like there there was there, there was there, there was like problems specifically around security um but that 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 happens in a lot, a lot of these things and that that's kind of worth discussing on a whole in a whole other episode um and and there were attempts from fascists like 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 street fascists not cops to like to like attack the barricades and they didn't really succeed because there were just so many people there um so that was kind of that that was kind of what happened now People didn't know what the end game was for this type of thing, right? Because like we're just like they're just doing this thing. We're like we don't know how long this is gonna last. But as as this was happening, other people were setting up like GoFundMe's to raise money for um, the family. And eventually, the the kind of idea that was decided on by the family and a few other like people involved was like, what if we can just get enough money to actually buy the house back? Um, and after like a week and a half, they raised. I think three hundred and fifteen thousand dollars was the number, and because the developer was so shady, he was he like he like Robert said he like backed down immediately. He's like, no, yeah. we can we can find some other solution to this. <laughs> yeah. Just stop talking about it. Just please stop <laughs> talking about me and my business. <laughs> so Which I have to say, like we we said, probably an organized crime thing. I prefer this guy and whatever he's doing a thousand times to a bank. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so that that was kind of the the. Mm-hmm result is that the 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 family made a deal with both the city and this developer that they would try to basically use some of the fundraised money to buy back this spot but this would have been totally impossible if it weren't for the militant display of defense that uh activists um deployed in this in this street in portland because i mean there was like a lot of a lot of you know like the Portlandia liberal Portlanders weren't also weren't happy with this. So like every, like a lot of people wanted this situation ended. Um, so as soon as this thing became you know a possibility, the mayor was like quick was quick to jump on this as as a way to like stop this from happening. Uh, yeah, because they did not want this to continue, and because it, it would have been pretty difficult for the cops to push through. Like it, it would have turned into quite the shit show. And um, there's. I think two really important takeaways in terms of why it was able to succeed, and I think most of the the ultimate success of it was was was, re- was resultant on the t- first twenty four hours, really even maybe the first twelve, because yeah, once the sheriffs tried their first push and got pushed out, if they had done what generally happened in protests, which is you know you have sometimes you would have a push where the cops would like back off, they would bring in more forces, and if they had in an hour or two. They probably could have cleared people out and done yep. the eviction, but they were so surprised, and the fact that it had happened in broad daylight was a big factor. It was kind of early in the morning when this kicked off, that they didn't come back, and so immediately people started bringing more folks in. Within six hours or so, there were pretty potent barricades. By the time yeah. night fell, 
they were significant already. And they just, by the time I got there that night, they were, it was already too much to easily handle. Yeah. Um, and because of what happened in that first 12 hours, by the time the city kind of had adapted to what was happening, it was already a huge story. The level of defensive infrastructure was massive. Like it, it did, it, it was because of how quickly people came together and got barricades down that they were able to get the police off balance. We talk a lot about the Oda loop, right? About, how you kind of disrupt an opponent. And it is it is about stopping them from making a decision, right? Um, and so step one was kind of, once they f- forced the police out, there was something of a blackout about like what was, like people would talk about what was going on, but there wasn't a lot of footage from inside or video from inside. So it stopped the cops from observing as well as they might otherwise have. And of course they couldn't physically observe because they were blocked out of the area. Um, they weren't able to kind of, because of how quickly the media around it drummed up, they weren't able to sort of orient a response, find a way to villainize the protesters easily. There were attempts made after that to attack them personally, like the family in the house personally, but they didn't get on that quickly. Um, And overall, because of how quickly things developed and how quickly it got much larger than they were prepared to deal with, they were not able to decide and act in a timely fashion. And that left kind of the momentum on the side of the protesters and ultimately they were successful as a result of that and i i think if you're trying to study what about red house is replicable you know there's a lot of barricade tactics and stuff but a big part of it is just the speed with which people took action and how that pushed the 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 city and the police off balance and allowed a victory yeah, so you know the, the the city made the city the developer and the family made a deal that if basically if the barricades came down the cops won't mess with them um as this process of signing over the house and doing like financial stuff would go on and and and, and that is that is still an ongoing process that, that that's yeah. still something that's still that's still being um dealt with but the cops haven't messed with the property since December 5th. Um so that is that is you know and this this isn't a perfectly reputable. This isn't a perfectly um, like you, you can't you can't replicate this specific strategy always. Like you know, it's not always possible to raise two hundred fifty thousand dollars to buy to buy back a property. Um, yeah. You know, because especially if especially if you're renting, um, you know, there's there's all these things that can't be replicated exactly. But the general idea of very quick sudden mobilization that catches powers at be off guard is something that is can be useful in a lot of different scenarios right it's so the kind of the the reason because basically the the barricades and the fast mobilization created more options so if you want to create more options this is something that that can do that right this is something that can put more things on the table it, it may not be the same result but there's going to be other things that that could happen and I think the other thing that's important here, you know, it, it, to, you know, the, the the red house is sort of interesting because the cops, to some extent, were expecting resistance. They just weren't expecting this much. But you know, again, like as we were saying earlier, landlords like are basically relying to to a very large extent on people evicting themselves. Right? They're they're not expecting resistance, and th- this is why you know, self like this is why it tends to be. You know, if if you if you do one of these things, you get this like in, like one enormous police response, right? Like you know, they show they show up, they you know, Oakland, they show up at tanks, right? And the reason they do that is because you know wh- th- what what they can do is they can make an example out of people, right? But they can't actually stop everyone 
right? Like like they're 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 not they're not they're not they're not equipped for you know dealing with three million people just saying no. And so yeah. you know if if you organize fast enough and if you if you catch them by surprise, and you know if if you bring the stuff that they're doing like to light, like you know you show up to their houses, you show up to like you show up to the banks, you show up to their offices, right? Like they're not. You know, and and you keep going, right? They're 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 not they're not expecting this. They're not prepared for it. And you know, and you know, there's all this park deal. Like they'll lose, right? Like they they will a lot of times. Like they will negotiate. They will settle. They will not evict you. Like in 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 order basically to, you know, deal with all the attention. The fact that they can't drive you out. Yeah. All right, and I think that's going to uh, call it a day for us here at it could happen here um the podcast that is this one so go out and i don't know eat an entire 737 piece by piece or or do something else goodbye you can follow us at happen here pod nope. on twitter and instagram and not cool that's at allegedly instagram and uh... allegedly Allegedly, I'm Sophie. Too tired. Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>
Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.